Welcome back to our Breaking Bad Insider Podcast. My name is Kelly Dixon. I'm one of the editors of the new hit show, Breaking Bad, which airs on the AMC Network. And I'm here uh, today with uh, my co-host, Vince Gilligan. Hello. And uh, the writer of episode 212, John Scheiben. Hey. And you know what? I got to say, you guys, I've been waiting basically to do this podcast. I'm really, really excited because I'm a huge X-Files fan, and I'm actually working for two guys who are way on the inside circle of the X-Files. So you guys, (laughs) before we even talk about the episode, you guys really have to tell me about how's it like working on this together and how's it different? Obviously, you guys are really, really good friends, and uh, obviously have stayed that way. And I just want to, uh, I'm just totally excited, beside myself. I get chill blames myself. <laughs> Goosebumps. <laughs> no, it's great. I was uh, uh, was hoping John would be uh, free to come work with us because he was doing a movie uh, last year, Rest Stop. Rest Stop 2, Rest Stop 2. Rest Stop yeah. 2 you're doing last year in our season one. But uh, he had a little break and uh, come on to help us as a consulting producer. And uh, is just a big, big help uh, in the writing room and in the editing room. And he wrote this episode, which is our penultimate episode. Just right quick, though, you guys... Uh, uh, John, can you know what is the difference of working on this show rather than working on uh, a big show like The X Files? It's much more. I know. I was going to say this is a big show too. I, I was going to qualify. I was going to qualify. Uh, no, I mean uh, this is much more streamlined. You know, streamlined. It, it definitely much more streamlined. I'm and just busting your chops. It's, I know. It, it couldn't be much more different. I mean, certainly. Uh, well, yeah, go ahead and answer that, John. Well, I mean, I think it's in terms of the writer's room, which is probably the heart of the show, you know, that's where everything starts. And in a lot of ways, there are similarities, but it's a very different kind of show. It's much more serialized than The X-Files was. And so it means we're kind of working different muscles and that we're keeping track of character arcs in ways that we didn't have to do so much every week on the X-Files. Yeah. Um, there are no standalone episodes of Breaking Bad. Yeah, uh, that is true. Which makes it interesting to me. I mean, it, that's why it's a lot of fun because it's a new kind of challenge. Yeah, it's new muscles. That's a good way to put it. John was there a little before I was, but we are basically there about seven, seven and a half. I was yeah. there about seven years uh, yeah. together. And God, it was a great job. But I mean, on the, on the X-Files... You could send writers away. You, a writers, writer's a way to write, not well, uh, not not just to write. We send our writers away to write, but you on the X Files, you could send your writer away to conceive. In other words, uh, spend the weekend thinking up three or four ideas for an episode, and you come back on Monday. What do you got? Well, I got an Aztec mummy who lands in a flying saucer and invades, uh, you know, Nova Scotia. All we right, we well, did that one, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we did everything. <laughs> yeah. Two hundred and two episodes. Uh, what else you got? That sucks. What else you got? I got uh, something with the the Brown Mountain Lights down in Tennessee. Well, that's kind of interesting. What what do you think happens? Uh, people are like seeing weird stuff. All right, go work on that. You know, what do you got? You know, and everybody could go off and conceive of a standalone episode on their own, and that way you could get a lot of brains working separately. Massive parallel processing or whatever in computer <laughs> terms. You get a lot wow. of people working on different episodes all at once. Whereas on, on uh, Breaking Bad, because the show is so serialized, you got to get everybody all hands on deck working on minute by minute here. What happens next? And, and you, there's no point sending everybody away to do it because everybody's got to be on the same page. And everybody's got to know, you know, minute by minute what has happened up until this moment. And then where do we go from here? So it... There's really no 
way I can conceive of where you send off people to work individually. We, we really spend, a, and the writers, luckily, we all like each other very much. We spend a lot of time in the room Because you guys spend about, what, 12, 13 hours a day, every day. 10, five, to, 10 to 12, sometimes more, sometimes Five 13, days a week yeah. around a big sometimes conference table. Sometimes six days a week. Yeah. You know, yeah. with a couple toys in the middle and a lot of cards on Three the wall. Five cards all over the room. A lot of airsoft guns. <laughs> yeah. Shooting BBs. <laughs> But again, it's interesting for me, coming from the more procedural kind of model, uh, and if you say an X-File was case-driven, what's the what's the monster this week? What's the crime? Walt is so much a damage control character. He's so much about yeah. everything spiraling out of control and how am I going to fix it. Yeah. Uh, it's a very different way to tell a story, and it's it's equally as intriguing. In fact, you know, having done the other for so many episodes, it's it's really rewarding to to build stories in a different way. And like, you know, how can we make his life hell and What's he going to do about it? And and there's no right way. It's just two different forms of storytelling. The X-Files are sort of from the, see if you agree with this, from the outside in. You come up with a, yeah. a theme or a, you know, a gimmick, a gag. And with Walt, it's like Walt is, you start from the inside and work your way outward. Yeah, yeah. that's very good. Yeah. Do you guys, I mean, it's been how many years, uh, what, the X-Files ended like in 93 and now it's, it, it I mean, excuse me, it started in 93, it ended in, yeah, yeah nine years. Yeah. And so, um, obviously you guys have kept in touch, but do you guys still have like a shorthand between each other? Oh, I mean, sure. Oh, very much like, so. I think we, we know each other's uh, tastes and instincts and in, in the room and in the editing room too. I mean, we each have our own opinions and actually I think like uh, and understand each other's opinions and so it makes for a really nice working environment yeah. and, and I think it's it's good because we make each other better. Um, I like Vince's notes on what I've written or Vince's notes on what I've cut, et cetera, and vice versa, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. So also, if, we, we bathe each other. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say... It's the other rewarding part of it. Close very clean. It's good to be clean. If you guys were in a fist fight, who would win? <laughs> Uh, Kelly, Kelly here would beat both our butts. Kelly would, yes. Vince would probably have a gun, so I, I, I would probably lose. Well, I guess we, maybe we should uh, start talking about 212, but thank you very much, guys, for indulging me because that, you know, it's, like I said, I, I feel so privileged to be working, you know, with the two of you, especially being a big fan of yours. And, you know, three years ago, I never would have thought ever that I'd be sitting in a room with two, with you two guys. Well, i got to say one last thing about the X-Files. I mean, I've, I say this a lot, but I just really, I you know, I wouldn't be here. I'm just speaking for myself now. I wouldn't be here for uh, if it wasn't for the seven years in the X-Files. It really taught me how to, to do this job. Oh, yeah. I didn't know when I started this job if I could do it, but I... Uh, I know for damn sure I would not have been able to do it if I hadn't had that experience. You know, so thanks to Chris Carter and uh, Frank Spotnitz and all the folks at the X Files for uh, you know, and John and everybody I worked with there because I, I wouldn't all that underpinning of learning <laughs> to be a producer and also learning to be a better writer. You know, so it was a great experience. Just so people know um, out there, uh, the way that the shows usually work is. Um, you know, the writers will convene way before production, about, what, 10 weeks, something like that, before production starts, and you guys will hash out uh, a lot of your ideas for the, the season and then uh, basically yeah. make script assignments um, yeah. to uh, specific writers, and they will go off and write the episodes. Uh, part of the job as a writer-producer is to go onto the set and to help the director make the episode what it needs to be and get the shots you need, etc., but and I've done that a lot over the years. But I find that even on a writer producer run show, there's still this director on the set. He's still the boss on the set, and everybody looks to him. And oh yeah, so definitely. It's really it's it's an interesting balancing act. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, it definitely is. A director is a huge... And speaking of, that's a good segue to talk about the director of this episode, Colin Buxey. Colin Buxey. Colin. Who, who's a great uh, director. And English director. Englishman. Uh, has a wonderful voice. I told him when I first met him, I said, you ought to do voiceover work. And he... Uh, I worked with him uh, probably... When was this? Three or four years ago, I wrote an episode of the ABC series Night Stalker that uh, our friend Frank Spotnitz was running and uh, came in and did uh, a one-off, uh, one single episode of that as a freelancer. And uh, Colin Buxey happened to direct my episode, and I really liked him a lot. And he did a wonderful job. It was all took place in one room pretty much, and yet he made it very scary and very atmospheric and you know, found all the angles to shoot in that one room that kept the story interesting for an hour and not monotonous visually. And so I wanted to work with him again. And uh, so, John, you, you've now spent more time with him than I have because I never got to visit the set hardly. I was so busy back on the Night Stalker. And I didn't get to visit this set that much, unfortunately. But uh, you guys work pretty closely together. Oh, he was a joy. I really enjoyed uh He was terrific with the actors, and and he really got the tone of the show. And, uh, you know, he, he, he ran a, a very pleasant set. We got everything we wanted. There wasn't a lot of stress, which is helpful. And this was an actor's episode in a lot of ways. There's some very big scenes. It's not about the action. It's about what's going on in the characters' heads. And uh, I think he really dug deep and, and helped the actors dig deeper. But there is a little action right at the head of this when uh, Walt comes driving into that uh, deserted motel. And I happen to be here to witness this. Oh, yeah. But I'll let John tell it. That was funny as hell when uh, Brian Cranston pulled his Aztec to a stop. Well, he's rushing in. He's Walt is going to hide the money bag, and he's in a hurry because his baby's being born, and he finds an abandoned motel, and he turns a corner, and he hits the brakes, and he slams into the wall. <laughs> and uh, it, it bent the front end of that Aztec, and we, the tire, we had to replace the tire, pop the tire. Oh, yeah, pop the tire, screwed up the front end. <laughs> we only have two of these things, by the way, and one of them's only half painted. One's so, going to go to the Smithsonian. I know, day. I know, we gotta, you know, exactly. But uh, we clearly, for season three, we need more than, we need three Aztecs, all three of them ready at painted and ready to shoot well you know i gotta tell you a little bit about hints Stu, if you're listening yeah a little bit about cutting that scene um there's a a and b camera i believe on that shot and you guys uh gave us like one i think is through a window and the other one i think is high up the high angle Um, yeah high angle but you also had a camera inside i think probably behind walt's head shooting through the windshield yeah we did that Um, as a separate piece but yeah we did a separate take with just the yeah the video camera because um a lot of nice angles in it what what i'm getting at is that it was very funny to all of you guys on the set that this car comes crashing into the motel uh but here in the editing room wasn't so funny because we didn't have a shot of the car actually stopping um at all um you know and i think john you were telling me that you know you didn't have the other aztec at the time no to to do that shot exactly and uh, you know when i've got the footage i remember oh yeah they're laughing about this but we don't have what we need Oh crap! (laughs) um because uh we couldn't use the shot where the car actually crashed into the thing because every other shot in that scene does not have the aztec in that place so luckily because we shot it out of order we'd already shot the previous stuff exactly the thing is, is that the only shot we had where he actually stops the car is the shot through the windshield. It's incredibly ambitious to shoot any TV show in seven or eight days. It's just yeah. insane. Especially one that spends as much time out out, out and about as, as we do. Brian is actually a very good driver. He's, he's competed in those uh, Long Beach uh, celebrity 
Uh, oh really? Uh, I knew I knew I knew he did the putt putt. The Indy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the Long Beach was that the celebrity uh, Indy car, the whatever they yeah, open open wheel race. Really? Yeah. But he knows he's actually a very good driver, and he, he does does something else too. He always, whenever he's going to back the car up, he always honks the horn twice so that no crew people get run over. Which is, <laughs> wow. I think, is very. Uh, wow. I, I like that. That's nice. Public That's safety a nice announcement. Easy, yeah, exactly. He's always going eh, eh, and then beeping up to Aztec. Well, you he know, still runs over people. But yes, but at know, least he warned him. We we gave him fair warning. So well, you know, um, since we're on the subject of that opening scene, um, I guess I should ask you guys: How did you make the decision on uh, having the baby between episodes? Uh, we talked about it a lot, and uh, it wasn't as nothing is on this show. It wasn't clear to us what we should do. It, it involved a lot of us writers sitting around a room talking and arguing nicely. It just seemed like, uh, what was it, John? It just seemed like in this case, we've we've all seen the scene of a baby being born before. Yeah, I think it came from two things. One was, and we do this a lot as well, which is look for other interesting ways to tell stories we've seen. We, on purpose, try to find a different way to do things number one. Number two, once the decision was made that Walt would miss it, there was debate about that, you know, early on. Does he arrive? Which I think is great. It's a great, great, great. It's it's great for his character. It fits his character. And once we made that decision, I I think the idea that Walt misses it, you want the audience to miss it too. And it's it's really Walt's... Yeah, you're seeing it through Walt's eyes, yeah. Yeah, it's really Walt. We're we're in Walt's head so much in the series. You know, that's an interesting thing. We had George Masters in here. We were doing uh, episode 211. We were doing Mandala. And what we didn't talk about, what I, I meant to talk about with George, is that he really... We debated that last scene in the episode prior to this one a lot before he went off and wrote it. He didn't like the idea of Walt blowing off his wife's yes. delivering her baby for a drug deal. And, you know, George, you know, he's he's a really good dad, as is uh, John here. Most of our writers have kids. Uh, I don't have any myself. But George has two little, really cute little girls. And uh, George just, it was, what an awful idea, anathema to him that uh, this guy Walt would miss the birth of his daughter. And he's right, it is awful. Oh, it is awful. That's what I like about it. I know, to me, that was like, George, for God's sake, that's what, I don't mean like, George was, and by the way, he wrote the hell out of it. He did a great job writing it. But he was like, uh, this is terrible. I did I said yes, and that's why it's great. Well, yeah. I think you talked about you want like people to debate these things, and that yeah. is a huge debate. Well, I there's mean, not much to debate. Well, I guess there's a little. There's to a debate huge there. amount to debate because think about it. I mean, I'm I'm telling you guys to think about it, but think about it. It's like we talked earlier, you and I, um, in I believe the first podcast about how, uh, you know, I think that Walt is doing this for a good reason. At the end of the day, he's doing this to to help his family. This is. What what is the total? I think a million, one point two million dollars. I know yeah. that we shouldn't miss the bit, but you know, think about it. Well, you know, my wife will be okay, and this is one point two million dollars. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you know, can make, so yeah, that, I mean, there is a debate there's a, there. There's a there's an argument to make. He didn't yeah. he didn't miss uh, he didn't miss the birth of the baby to finish watching a football game or to no. get an ice cream cone. No. I mean, it was this was in his his mind. This was more money than. I can make in one fell swoop everything my family will need long after I'm gone. So, and yeah. the other thing, too, is the guy told him in that episode, you better be there in an hour. Don't bother showing up again. That's yeah, it. Yeah, don't show your you face know, this, here again. Walt, I think, realized.
realizes that this is a huge opportunity. If he can make sure that he can deliver to to uh, Gus, then you know there could be a chance for more. Yeah, but what's is- interesting about Walt though is that's that's probably his rationalization. I'm throwing away a million too, yeah. but the, the the guy who go who shows his infant child the stacks of money is somebody who's doing it for other reasons yes <laughs> there are other reasons there's other stuff going on absolutely there. <laughs> which is you know i absolutely love that too that happens yeah, later in story. this episode and it's one of my favorite favorite images of of the whole show is the fact that i mean walt has shown nobody else this money except for this baby yeah and i love how he's like see what daddy did for you daddy yeah. did that for you that's, yeah. that's well and also i love it i love the way brian played it yes. you, you wrote it very nicely and also brian played it you know you could see a lesser actor playing it all suddenly psychotic. Did you see what Daddy did? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, behold. But you know, it's, it's he just fun. plays it so matter of fact. He does. It's and, fun and, too. And holding a real baby, which was, which is a real no, baby. no yeah. mean feat. It's, it's, it's yeah. fun too because not you real know. money, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. but it's a real baby. But it, it is kind of fun too because you know he's. I think that he really feels like you know he's a good dad. That's just my opinion. I think I he does like too. He, sure. he feels like he's a great dad, and nobody you know, thinks of themselves as evil or bad. Exactly. Hitler thought he was a great guy. He himself, you know, nobody <laughs> thinks of. I know it's funny. It's an obvious, seems obvious to say it, but I learned it's a good lesson I learned long ago when I first started writing professionally. I would write scenes where the bad guy sort of was defensive and sort of apologizing, and and uh, one of my early producers said, "Bad guys don't apologize because they don't believe they're bad." Yeah, <laughs> and it's absolutely true. Pol Pot had, in his mind, good reasons for, you know, destroying most of Cambodia. You know, it, 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 all these lunatics have reasons. You know, but, but uh, I just absolutely love the way that Walt has totally evolved into this. You know, I don't know where he's going or how far he's going to go, and I love the fact that I don't even bother to guess. I was making the Pol Pot comparison a minute ago. Walt, I don't mean to say that in my mind he's evil or a lunatic. Walt is a, very much has feet of clay in my mind. He's very much a flawed individual, but he's that's not a great analogy. It's not completely applicable that he's some sort of, you know, but he's, you know, he is, you know, people, I say this a lot, I just find it endlessly fascinating, uh, People rationalize the capacity for rationalization that we all uh, possess is is just about endless. You oh, can yeah. rationalize any kind of behavior, oh, little, yeah. little bad behavior, little or big. And the and, wonderful thing too is people condemn other people doing the same thing. Oh yeah, people but you all, rationalize the hell out of what you're doing. We all hate hypocrites, uh, <laughs> and yet I know I do, and yet I'm perfectly capable of being hypocritical. I mean, I think we all are. This is a good thing though. I want people arguing over Walt's behavior. I don't want it to be clear-cut i don't want anything that happens on the show to be that clear-cut that there's a right and a wrong the funny thing about science and chemistry is there's it's black and white there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer and that's all on our show that's black and white everything else is different shades of gray i want people arguing over what walt is doing here i want them to say yeah, it's terrible he missed his daughter's birth, but it's just bad timing. It's just him <laughs> him getting the shit into the stick as usual because how can you turn down a million two? That's all the money his family will ever need. But on the other hand, he wouldn't be in this position at all if he had taken the money that Elliot and Gretchen offered him no strings attached way back when. But he didn't do that because he's a prideful man or, you know, and, whatever. And I think, you know, you guys have talked about it before. You know, he's this is one of the first times that he's living his life. 
and he's enjoying it, you know, flat out. All all goes. I'll say it. I think he's enjoying. I think he's enjoying it. Oh yeah, I think so oh, yeah. too. You I know, think you're right. Hey, let's talk about that uh, that great uh, tire gag. Yeah, I was going to say when I first read that, you know, it just basically said that uh, Walt pulls the spare tire out of the back of the car, and then all we see. Uh, as an audience, is the tire coming down the road with Walt in the background. And I wasn't sure how you guys were going to pull that off. I wouldn't and, either. And when they explained it to me, it didn't make sense. But, but you guys, Dennis Peterson, our special effects guy, really pulled it off nice. Talk about that, John. Yeah. I, I, in fact, Colin had the idea of the tire coming right at camera. I mean, the original script, I think it, it bounced around or something. But anyway, uh, Dennis came up with this idea. And what's really interesting is it's in the shot um there's a rig that's behind the aztec up against the uh the little motel room that walt parked in front of it's basically a ramp that runs from uh, above the roof line and down to the ground and we had a one of the crewmen was up there with the tire and as walt throws the tire out of camera out of sight he would release it, and it, the first take, it was like perfect. Went right for the camera. It takes the bounce by the phone. Yes, it bounces off very of, serendipitous of, of the bounce. phone, which was just set deck. They just said, you know, we just said, put some gack in there. So it's some tumbleweeds. And it looks too, you know, and so they put a phone in it. Hit the phone, smashes the phone, bounces toward the camera. Ben Scissors, our first AD in that episode, saved the camera by sticking his leg in the way. And, of course, he cut open his leg and had to go to the emergency room. He's okay. But, you had to get a tetanus shot. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Kelly cleverly married that take uh, with uh, other takes and uh, with a little CGI, you'll never see his leg. Yeah. Um, but it just it was just one of those perfect combinations of a, of a clever rig and a great shot. It's the twister shot. Remember that yeah. uh, the movie Twister, the uh, that amazing shot where the truck tire comes smashing right through the windshield of the car. That was like the one reason I went to see that movie. And then I go to the damn movie, and the shot's not in the damn movie. It's only in the it's only in the commercial. <laughs> Warner Brothers, I want my money back, <laughs> or whoever that studio was. Anyway, but uh, this is sort of like that. The tire comes right at the lens. And- I don't know how many times you guys shot it. But uh, that was the only time that it actually came straight at the camera. You know, luckily, because you guys had the other shots and because the camera was still, it was locked down. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. We'd do so much handheld in this show. It, this, your trick would not have worked, I no. guess, if it had been a handheld well, shot. Well, we could have thrown a lot of money at it and made it work, but uh, it would yeah. have been much, much harder. And where would we have gotten that money from? I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so I guess next, uh, you know, Walt gets that phone call and, you know, the baby's there. And uh, so Walt, you know, makes a run for it to the hospital. And, uh, and we meet baby Holly. We meet baby time. Holly. And uh, we also get to see uh, our actor uh, who plays Ted Beneke. Christopher Cousins. I love the way uh, Colin reveals him because it's a wonderful, sweet moment of Walt hugging his little baby girl. And then you see uh, Ted Beneke standing in the background. And not, you know, being perfectly nice. Right. Gentlemanly. Guy, gentleman guy, but you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> uh, 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 Who's this He's the one that got to see my baby being born. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, actually, I remember talking to Colin about that and how to block it. And I, and I said the one thing, you know, I want to enjoy the moment Walt first. And then see Ted, and he's like, and, and I remember his eyes lit up. He's like, I got, it, I got it, come on, and yeah. we blocked it out, and it, it, it worked beautifully. It's a great. It's not just a great idea for a shot. Our camera crew executed it beautifully because you know, if you don't, if the camera operator doesn't execute it properly, the greatest 
shot in the world is still just a matter of theory, but it's really well executed. I love that. This is a really solid teaser, one of my favorites in this uh, of the season. Um, after the baby comes, Walt sees the baby. But I guess then the next thing is uh, Walt gets home with the money in the car. And I was always wondering about, you know, how do you guys figure out how much money, spatially, how much, you know, $1.2 million takes up? Well, we have a really good uh, Mark Hansen, our props man. He's our prop property master. master. Property master. Thank you. Mark is the guy that provides the money. These guys uh, did the math and figured out, well, these are mostly 20s and fit, with a few 50s scattered in. And how many 20s does it take to equal $1.2 million in cash? And, and I think that amount that you see there is uh, as accurate as we could get it. It's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of bread, man. It's a lot it's of cheddar. A lot of paper. A whole well, lot of cheddar. We had to make sure that it wasn't too big for him to carry in one bag because we didn't want. Yeah. So we did the calculations. It was like, okay, that'll work. You know, it's yeah. just heavy enough. I just remember in the movie Heat, you know, Michael Mann, one of my favorite directors who I've been lucky enough to work with. He's a great director. But I remember watching Heat. God, best bank robbery scene ever. <laughs> and uh, I remember one of the things that struck me was somehow in every movie I'd seen before that, the guy, the bad guys grab the money and then they. But I, the money is so uh, such a physical presence in Heat. It's so freaking heavy. Yeah. That much money and these guys, these big brawny guys are having trouble carrying it it's that's how heavy it is and it's like of course it would be suddenly you know, i'm watching that and i'm like of course that's be the way it is be like Reams carrying of paper like yeah. carrying yeah. a santa claus sack full of phone books i mean this yeah. you'd be barely able to lift it you know <laughs> um I, I guess moving through the episode we come to uh walter jr's new website savewalterwhite.com and I was wondering how you guys came up with the idea of laundering this money through the website. I think it's pretty ingenious. Yeah, John, you want to take that one? Sure. We, you know, in the writers' room, there's uh, there's the board that we're working on uh, currently, which is uh, a cork board, and we pin up three by five cards for every scene, etc. Then there are other boards, which are like idea boards, and things get thrown up there as as they come out, so we don't forget them. And one of the things that was up there was an idea probably from last season, certainly from before I came on board, which was, if you recall in the pilot, Skyler is selling things on eBay to make a little extra cash. And somebody had the notion that Walt starts buying things for more than they're worth or something as a way to somehow get money funneled back to the family. And so with that in mind, when we came to breaking this episode, that was one of the challenges that Walt had to face, which is, okay, you got the money, now what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. And uh, and and we came up with the notion that Walter Jr. builds a website to take donations through PayPal. And Vince was off doing something, and we were working on the story. And then he came back, all sweaty and. I was. I think tired. I was at that time. I was sewing clothes for Chihuahuas. <laughs> yes, it's a little something I do on the side. Yes, <laughs> dress them up as different clowns from famous clowns from history. It's all true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we pitched him what, you know, we, we came up with this Walter White, this website, and, and he immediately jumped on it, uh, realizing that what better humiliation for our our Walter White than to have to get cyber charity via his, his son. And You guys think of everything. <laughs> you know, it's just, a, you know, you can't help it. You get six smart folks in a room, the writers in this case, and uh, you sit them down for 10 hours a day for months on end, and, and you, you, you look at it from every angle you can conceive of, including, all right, you got a million two in cash. What the hell do you do with that? How do you explain to your wife? Think about it. It's like, 
How are you going to explain to your wife even twenty or thirty dollars? I found a bag of money by the river. Yeah, works for me. Uncle Murray. Yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) and the and and those those would have worked, but the added problem is that Walt is uh, an insanely prideful man. You know. But but I I I would just pick up that idea that the six smart people in the room. You'd be surprised all the dumb ideas that we go through. I mean, that's part of oh, the, yeah. that's part of the yeah. process. Is that we are we throw out everything and, and everything's fair game and and yeah. there are no stupid thoughts and because you're trying to solve a puzzle and in a way that's yeah. original and fresh and no, interesting. So I mean, we you know we'll have ideas and and sometimes the really bizarre ones end up coming back. You know, yeah. but uh, it's a very good point. It, and with it, a lot it, of a people. lot of dumb ideas, I've had t- more than my share. And and but yeah, you just you keep you keep at it and you keep at it and you keep at it and uh, eventually the good ones come. But with a lot of people too, um, I mean, in in my little bit of time uh, in the writers' room last year, um, the cool thing about it is is that yeah, you can throw a dumb idea, idea out there and it may come out as dumb, but boy, with you know all the minds working around the table, you can like maybe reform it into something that's totally workable. Right, that's it'll what the inspire. Cool thing yeah, no, sometimes just hearing. The alternative it makes you click in your head and you go, oh, wait, not that, this. Ah. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of, a lot of the, We can make this work. A lot know. of the uh, dumbest ideas have led to some of the best ideas. It, you know, the thing of it is, I always, I say this jokingly, except it's not really a joke in the writer's room. I keep saying it's a safe room. It's a safe place. Well, except smirk. from gunfire. Except for gunfire. Except from <laughs> BB, BB gunfire. No, but it has to be. I tell you, if you're, if you're writer's room, if you sit around and, and make fun of your writers for their dumb ideas... You know, and you know, and you've got full well, you got plenty of dumb ideas of your own. You're, very shortly, the well is going to go completely bone dry, and no one's going to give you any more ideas. You can't laugh at anybody's ideas, no matter how dumb you might think they are, <laughs> because uh, you know you'll they'll dry up quick, and uh, and then you won't get the good ideas. It's uh, it's it's sort of obvious, but I, I hear about showrunners who sort of it's open season on their writers, and I'm like, how do you, how the hell do you explain how do you to get anything people? done? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, this is the first episode where we see, I think it's the first episode where we see that Jane actually goes to uh, Narcotics Anonymous and yeah. meetings. Uh, what was that like as far as, you know, getting in touch with N.A. and, you know, getting a blessing, I hope, from them, I assume? Narc- Nar- Narcotics Anonymous were very uh, supportive and very helpful. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Yeah, no, they, they uh, we weren't sure what their reaction would be, but... Um, we uh they they were 100 percent behind the idea and the character and they provided us with the their real literature and their real logo and 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 somebody to talk to about what really goes on in the meeting because i mean the ethos on the show everything from meth cooking to kleptomania we try to be real and so this was really helpful to to actually hear from somebody what went on and then we we wrote the scene based on that I think they they very rightly wanted to know how we would be presenting their information, and and absolutely correctly wanted it to be presented accurately. And once they knew that was our intention, they were very helpful and were fine with it. We wanted to to know how a real one looks so we can be as realistic as possible. And we we do that with the meth cooking. We do that with the NA meetings. We do that with the cancer support groups. We do that with the oncology doctors. We do that with the DEA. We. Like John said, we just want to be as technically accurate as possible because you don't ever have to have been. It's actually something I learned from Michael Mann, I think. I'm thinking not to mention him again, but why not? Uh, it's a very smart thing. It's like if you 
if you make something technically accurate, even if it's something that the audience has no history with, if it could be, you know, some arcane bit of medieval history or it could be some something uh, firefighters do, it could be whatever. If, if you make it technically accurate, a lot of people would say, why waste your time? The audience doesn't know from that, from mm-hmm. Adam. They don't know from Adam. You know, why bother making it so perfectly technically accurate? It's because human beings have a bullshit detector built in, mm-hmm. and they can sense when something is really, you've gone that extra mile to make it real. Well, you know, what's fun, too, is about when you're talking about things that are real, um, the scene out with a family eating Los Pollos Hermanos chicken, which oh, I absolutely love. My favorite. Um, <laughs> Delicious. Um you guys shot that scene um, at the real house that's in Albuquerque. Uh, the, who I'm sorry, who are the owners of the house? Uh, Fran and Lewis are very sweet people who own uh, the house that uh, the White family lives in. Yeah, talk about that one. That was a tricky one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very tricky. I mean, even from the writer's room, we, we knew we wanted to do it around the pool. Unfortunately, it was um, December or November and December. It was uh, December. Was it December? Oh, I think it's it all was a blur. December. It was very chilly, and we were. And it's a scene with real baby and real actors, etc. And so you have to be concerned about all that, not only because of their comfort, but because you don't want to see their breath as if they're having a barbecue outside and it's four degrees. Yeah, you know, just it, it won't point. seem real. Yeah. So after much debate, we came up with the idea that we would shoot a master of the scene with the actors at the real house. So we did a, we did a really wide shot that you see in the show with the pool in the foreground and Hank coming out with the food and et cetera, and ran the dialogue there. We did a tighter version of that while we were there and then it just got too cold. So what our terrific art department and set tech uh, folks did was recreate the backyard on stage where you can control the climate obviously. And, uh, and that's where we did the so-called coverage and I didn't know that until you told me. It was so weird because I was worked on that scene for quite a while, and that's uh, the magic that's a of tribute to yeah, yeah. To, it, it looked great, and the artistry of our technicians who can match an indoor scene. Well, just the li- lighting too, and the, li- yeah, yeah, the lighting yeah, is a like huge. For, for huge example, part of it. they had a they had a big uh, aluminum pan in one corner, full of half full of water, and they would bounce a light off it. And there was one guy whose job was to shake the pan. So and it looks the like pan the, and it makes little waves, and so the little waves like the make the pool reflection onto the actors' faces. And it was pretty cool. I guess this might be a good time to talk about the fact that you guys shot out there with the real baby. Well, several babies, because that scene took way longer than 20 minutes that the baby is allowed to work. The, the babies had to get consumed and have to be replaced. <laughs> and, uh, yes. But uh, the scene actually starts with Marie holding the baby. And um, I looked at this close-up of Marie, and you know her eyes were red. And I thought she was sick. And uh, I remember Colin Buxy, when he came in, he said, oh, no, uh, she's crying. And I'm like, what? So, John, you know, you were there. What was the deal with Marie crying? Well, she had recently uh, given birth herself. In fact, we used, I don't know if you talked about it on another podcast, but we used her uh, pregnant belly to double for... Yeah, we did. Story. We did. We actually yeah. did talk about that. So, yeah, you know, we'll, right. we'll, we'll use our actors for anything. Yeah. Um, but no, it was very emotional for her and, and for uh, And it had been Anna, like, what, week, a, a had, week or so that she yeah. had had that baby? That yeah, she had had her little baby soon. boy? Yeah. So it was just very emotional every time the the real babies were on set. Uh uh, not in, in in a very positive sort of motherly way, but uh, she was just touched and tickled by these babies and wanted to see her own baby again and started crying. And then and then what would happen was uh, when she would start crying, I think she'd start a chain reaction because yes. uh, Anna would start crying. Yeah, 
And then, uh, and then Dean Norris would just start bawling. Yeah, yeah. and everybody yeah. would cry. You wouldn't have to say nah. cut. Nah, I'm just kidding about that. I, no. <laughs> I doubt very much. No. no, it's funny when a real baby is brought on to, to a set. Everybody acts differently, and nobody wants to drop it and the whole thing. And, John, you know all about that. You say you got to toughen them up. Toughen them up. You, you know all place. about that, John. Yes. Tell, tell us about your experience with uh, them having a real baby Oh, yeah, on that's set. a good one. Yeah, tell them. Yes, I, 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 I used my own son for... Uh, uh, you know the X Files. Um, Jerry was Scully's first baby, and little I still Jerry Scheiben, little carrying him on the set. Everybody being very quiet, and uh, you know David Duchovny didn't drop him, so all was well. That's right. You would have decked him. <laughs> <laughs> you trusted uh, David and Jillian to hold your. Uh, to hold, yes, yeah. yes. How old, how old was Jerry at the time? Uh, six weeks. And now he's eight. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah. Happy birthday, Jerry. Yeah. That's right. He just had a birthday. Does he? Uh, do you ever show him that? And he's like, "That's uh, me." The the first time I showed him, he was a little too young, and it just confused him. Yeah. Uh, but then I showed him recently, and and he was tickled by it, and and uh, said he wanted to be famous again. Uh, so I ended up putting him in our Minnesota uh, to play right. young Jesse. So he, he plays he, young Jesse. He's uh, available where he's on the internet on the right drums now. There. He <laughs> takes he takes drum lessons. And now he's, he's famous he's again. Yes. So uh, that's the extent of his child acting, if it's up to me. But, Big uh, shout out to Jerry. <laughs> um, uh, I guess we should maybe mention um, a little bit about these phone calls. Uh, we have a lot of phone calls on on our show, but uh, we have this one phone call uh, where Jane calls Walt, and Jane has not approached Walt before, and now Jane is basically calling Walt saying, where's Jesse's money? Right. But, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about the logistics of shooting those phone calls because uh, they're obviously done in two different places, uh, two different sets. And Actually, uh, it's funny. It was three places because we had, we did, uh, Brian had to do half the call on stage. And oh, yeah, the kitchen is actually the kitchen on, is a on a set. soundstage. The kitchen so he starts the conversation. The yeah. He starts the conversation there and on a different day. And then the conversation is finished outside at the location house. Actually, before, I think, I believe we shot that before we shot the, we shot the end of the conversation before we shot the beginning of the conversation. Yeah. And then Kristen Ritter, who's on the other side of the phone playing Jane, was on another day, on another set, on another stage at, at Q Studio. So, it, it, I, you know, kudos to the actors for finding the same the, the moment and making it seem consistent yeah and then the makeup people and the hair people and the and the uh costume people like john just said i mean you know brian cranston steps out of a real house and finishes up a conversation and then two or three days later he shoots the beginning of the conversation and it has to be seamless so all these other departments have to get everything right you know make sure he's in the right clothes everything's adjusted just so the makeup is seamless and and we don't have uh, i mean some shows on uh, x files we had uh on set playback and things that you could do to yeah. give clues we don't have that so the yeah, actors have to find it and recall what they did yeah. and what their mood was and where their head was at and it, it's it, it can be tricky yeah we had the money and the time on the x files to uh big to, show well big show we had a full-time <laughs> vtr guy full-time uh, playback guy and you'd say, yeah, that scene was pretty good. But uh, I don't know. Did we miss the thing? Well, let's let's run it back. And let's, <laughs> everyone stands around and watches it. The cost of the playback is, is infinitesimal compared to the cost of the time it takes. To play you know, back. magnified, you know, 100 times a day by, yeah, should we look at that again? I don't miss it, actually. I don't either. I thought I would. Now, I remember in the pilot saying, what? We can't have playback. How barbaric. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you, know, you know, I don't miss it either. 
Yeah, yeah. just, just got to pay attention the first damn time, you know. Uh, and we should talk about uh, that wonderful scene of John Delancey and Brian Cranston. Well, John Delancey, first off, wonderful, wonderful job yeah. playing uh, Donald, Jane's dad. And that bar scene, shot in a real bar near Kirtland Air Force Base, not too far from Kirtland in Albuquerque. And that scene, that scene is uh, quite a long scene, quite involved, a lot of different angles. And uh, really wonderful acting on the part of Brian and John. How'd you guys, I mean, that must have happened very early in the game, you know, uh, deciding that that these two gentlemen would meet. And it's funny because they don't know each other, but we as an audience know. Yeah. And I know that's, you know, a little bit of a deviation for the show is it to, you know, I mean, we do it sometimes, but a lot of times, like you say, you like us to discover things as Walt discovers them. But in this case, we don't. We, We actually find out. Uh, a little bit about we, what's we going know on before, before he does it. Before he, maybe he'll never, you know, season three, who knows, but uh, maybe he'll never know, who knows. No, but you know what it is, I, you know, we're, we're recording this podcast long before the episode airs, but hopefully, uh, well, hopefully people dig it as much as uh, we hope they will, and hopefully people won't say, uh, that's just a weird coincidence. That would, that's like, a, how do you make a coincidence like that believable? <laughs> to me, coincidences are always believable if they're bad for your hero. Yeah, <laughs> coincidences are never believable if it's good if it's good luck, but if it's like Murphy's Law in real life tells me if it's a weird coincidence, but it makes my life miserable, it's perfectly believable. It's quite a somber scene though, because um, you know we know the excuse me uh, Jane's dad. We've just seen Jane's dad uh, break into his house, and I mean you know he's heartbroken. He's spent you know I don't know how many months. Well, I guess maybe at least eighteen months. Uh, going every week to these NA meetings with his daughter. And he's really, you know, quite heartbroken that his daughter has slipped so easily. And he totally blames Jesse. I mean, in a way... I think he blames his daughter, too. But, I mean, I think there's a lot of free-form anger. It's certainly a lot of it directed at Jesse. Exactly. It's just so tough. It's just, how do you... you You can't make an adult do anything they don't, you barely make a child do something they don't want to do how do you make an adult do anything that they don't want to do how do you make an adult going to rehab if they're not ready but you, for, you, you don't really i mean but for these two gentlemen to meet how incredibly bizarre and how did you guys um come up with that in the writer's room it just you know uh, it, you know what it is i we had two fine fine actors and we just wanted to see them together we, knew we wanted no i think that's yeah. The, worlds and, colliding and, there and then the irony comes from that and and you know sometimes in the writer's room just like on the set it's the tail wags the dog and that turns out to be a good thing and it's like that happens a lot actually with with aaron and brian where we'll just be in the middle of an act and say we haven't had a scene of the two of them together we got got to get them together they're gold yeah, they're, and they're then gold that leads yeah. you if you're you know, if if you have a good room like we do, then that leads you to good realistic stuff. It's yeah. not that it's it, it's not where it's that's where it ends. It ends in a great place. It starts though sometimes yeah. from, gee, we got to get these guys together, and then it's like, wow, look at the brilliant irony. I think that you get out of that that Walt gets his motivation to save Jesse's life, quote unquote, from and, the very man who is losing his daughter. So it's a, you know, yeah, the very man who's it's crushing irony, and it's certainly intentional, and it's just. But Walt doesn't know. No, no, no. no but, but that's the, what's ir- the ir- well. Nor does uh, Donald. But right. the irony is, he's giving good advice, uh, heartfelt advice that he truly believes in. You, you'd never give up on family. Family is everything. And Walt, kind of, not in an evil way. He's not being evil here. He's being weak, I think, but not evil. But he sort of perverts that good advice into 
Maybe pervert is too strong a word. Maybe it's not. But he, Jesse is almost like family to me. He mm. means something to me, even though I'd be loath to admit it. I have a connection to this kid. It's it's uh, a lot of it is, um, you know, he's helpful to my meth cooking career. But also, I I, I feel some sort of responsibility for this kid. Right. I want to see him do right. I don't want to see him overdose on heroin with this awful skank. You know, he, it, Walt has no emotional investment in this young lady. You know, I'm talking the way he would see it, and 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 she's taken him down a terrible path. Of course, you know, hypocrisy. Well, it's almost like the two guys are blaming. I mean, you know, none be nonce to either of them. Walt is blaming Jane, and uh, Donald is blaming Jesse. Yeah, yeah, in in a way, yeah. I guess yeah. you could see it that way. Yeah, yeah I guess you could. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Walt is being practical and thus losing his soul. I mean, this is a rough scene. And, actually, we should talk uh, this last bit here. We should talk about how this scene, AMC, to their credit, uh, is is pretty fearless. The mo- yes. most fearless network I've ever heard of, let alone worked for. They are fearless in putting this show in the air in the first place. But this scene scared everybody. The end scene. Uh, really? And, uh, uh, me included. Really? And AMC. The, the scene of Walt letting... The end scene, not the bar the scene. scene. Not, not oh, the bar oh, scene. I'm jumping bar ahead. Scene, okay. No, the end scene. The, yeah. the, the end scene of Walt letting this girl... Even worse than killing Crazy 8 with the bike lock? Way worse. I'll tell you yes. why. Wow. Because yes. he is a... Crazy 8, we humanized him. We found out way back last year that he is a human being, that he's not evil... But he is a drug lord of some repute, of some on some level. He's a drug lord. He he was perfectly willing to kill Walt in the pilot. And Walt, it's going to turn out to be kill or be killed with Walt. Walt says to Crazy Eight, "Are you going to stick me with that broken piece of plate?" And right. Crazy Eight immediately reacts and tries to fight him off. Walt has to kill the guy at that point. This is way different. This is a beautiful young girl who is not. I mean, yes, she's blackmailed him, but on the other hand, Walt does owe Jesse that money. She's right when she says, do the right thing here. I mean, it's ill-gotten gains. It's criminal money, you know, garnered from a criminal enterprise, but, I mean, it is Jesse's money. Yeah. It's not up to Walt to say how Jesse should spend it. He's a grown-up, and she she's not evil, and we don't intend people to say, oh, what an awful girl. I mean, we're you're supposed to feel... You know, I, I I don't want to say you're supposed to feel. You feel any way you feel when you watch our show. But I, I when I watch it, I feel sad for her. I feel mm-hmm. very sad for her. But I don't feel Walt is evil. I just I feel like he's lost a big part of his soul, his humanity, when he does this. But the sad ending of the episode is you, you sense, through Brian Cranston's wonderful acting, you sense that he understands that himself. And he has made quite a turn. I mean, of the many turns that he's made this season in that those shots of Brian, which, I mean, he makes such a turn in the, the, that one little sequence. It's and one of the finest moments of acting. I told him on the set, I was very fortunate to have been there when that scene was shot and that moment was shot. And it's one of the finest moments of acting I've ever witnessed. I mean, this is a moment where he's horrified at his own actions and he, he, he feels this loss, uh, he feels terrible, he feels this loss of his own humanity, he feels awful, he feels like, I'm going to hell. You see it in his eyes. Totally. And and then he hardens and resolves and turns back into some form of Heisenberg at the end. He, it's like Jekyll and Hyde. He does it yeah. all. He does it in complete silence in the space of about 12 seconds, 15 seconds. These yeah. One of the finest bits of acting I've ever seen. I don't even think it's no. that long. It's nine, it, eight, it was ten. amazing. And, it's and, amazing. It was know, amazing to watch. 
the set can be so distracting and noisy and I still remember just standing by the monitor and there was nothing else but his eyes. Yeah, that's uh, it was, true. It was oh, just yeah. like, oh my God. And I remember saying to Brian after, I was like, I was like very quietly went up to him because I was like moved. And I said, that was one of the, just what I just said now, it was one of the finest moments. And he looked at me a little, what's the word, nonplussed a little. I mean, he was very flattered, but he was like, yeah, oh, okay. Just, just <laughs> yeah, a guy doing no, his job. You know, it's you know? No, he said that to because, me. He said, yeah, yeah. is that what you wanted? I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, too, because um, if I'm not mistaken, he has not seen this. Uh, no, I don't not believe... Not at the time uh, that we're doing this podcast. I don't believe no, our I actors believe have seen has. it. No, no, I think all of our actors uh, will and should be very proud, all of them, of their work this season. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think they're going to be rightly very proud. So. Well, I guess we should uh, we should wrap this up. Um, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, it's Kelly. Been awesome for me, especially. But you know, I hope that it's been awesome for you too. It's been the awesomest. <laughs> so uh, we will reconvene uh, on episode two thirteen, the last episode of our season. And I know that people are probably chomping in the bit; they cannot wait to see this episode. Um, you know, because we it's boy, we one. have hit yeah. people you were surprised over the head this week. Several wait till next. <laughs> wait, wait till you ain't seen this, nothing this yet. This episode again was uh, episode two twelve, called uh, Phoenix, written by John Shiven and directed by Colin Buxy. So uh, thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go break bad.